Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club on the Dana Buckler Show. This is our second very special Halloween episode. This is not a numbered volume. We have done two of these because it's October and we want to get you filling in the mood for some scary movies this month. I'm your host, Mike Scott, and as always, I never do this show alone because nobody wants to hear me talk for that long, so I'm pleased to welcome a very special guest. And I am super pleased to welcome our guest tonight. He is one of my favorite people in the entire world. He is one of the people that welcomed me with real open arms when I started hanging out on F This Movie, Adam Risky. Adam, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. It's uh, it's fun to get a chance to talk to you for extended amount of times about uh, 90s horror tonight. Yep, and that is exactly what I was going to say. Is uh, It's a horror theme, but Adam, tell us a little bit about why you picked the more narrow focus of 90s horror. So a couple of reasons. One is just to pick horror as a genre unto itself is a little intimidating. And I'm trying to keep in mind the express purpose of the 20th Century Movie Club, which is a lot of the movies that you and I grew up with that we kind of feel like are just in the language of the movies that we know aren't necessarily the case for some of the younger listeners and younger visitors of, uh, of the show. Hopefully we can take an era, at least for me, that I'm very well versed in because it was the, the time, it was the decade where I just became the horror fan that I am. And um, I just have a lot of personal history with so many movies from the period that I think it's, it, it's a good opportunity to have with some sort of a level of authority, a way to contextualize the importance of these movies for their time and also why they still endure to this day. Could not have said it better myself. I love, I love this pick and, and I, you know, and I just, I see so many people bagging on nineties horror and it's like, yeah, it's not the heyday of the eighties and it's not the heyday of thirties if you like classic stuff, but, and there's some really, as we're going to find out, there's some really good stuff there. Before we get started, and I will give you a chance to plug some stuff at the end of the episode, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what's happening this October over at F This Movie? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so the site that I write for and uh, do podcasts for occasionally um, is called fthismovie.com. It's the letter F This Movie. During October, we have branded it for the past 10 years as Scary Movie Month. So it's the site is taken over by the horror genre, and it's um, our month-long celebration of the genre that the predominant number of our of our staff just loves the most. So it's a real love fest all month for the genre. Um, we have podcasts and articles and um, ways for throughout the month and ways for you to participate also, namely by leaving seven word reviews, no more, no less of the movies that you're watching during the month of October. So if you go to F this movies website and really kind of find any particular day, it'll say the scary movie challenge day six on the day that we're recording this. And then you just go ahead and click through and then write down the title of the movie you watched and leave a seven word review. It could be 
um, an actual bit of criticism. It could be a pun. It could be a joke about the movie. It could be just some random little tidbit that you picked up on. But um, if we uh, pick out your your uh, seven word review, you have a chance of getting it read on the, the one of the episodes of at this movie during October, which is always fun to hear. So we highly encourage you to join us. It's a big Halloween party over there all month. It's actually where I first found if this movie was during scary movie movie month. And after all these years, you'd think I'd be better at seven word reviews, which I'm I'm not. I'm terrible. The 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 quality and creativity that I see that people come up with on seven word reviews. But I still try because it's it's so much fun and it's so interesting to try and craft dwindle your thoughts about a movie down to just those seven words it's it's really actually a good exercise it's like a good mental exercise as well if you're like some of the people and you can be really funny doing it too god love you yeah it's uh it's a challenge sometimes because i'll be watching a movie especially a movie that is new to me and i'm like what is my seven word review and it's like adam just watch the movie that's the reason why you're watching the movies not to have a seven word review (laughs) So it can be it can be intimidating if you let it. So my my advice to uh, people who have never left a seven word review, watch the movie. The first seven words that come to your mind about it. That's your review. Don't think too much about it. Yeah. And I find the best ones do tend to just come when you just watch the movie and then you're done with it. And and something I watched uh, Relic today, which I won't say what I thought of the movie, but, you know, I was pretty happy with my seven word review and I didn't even think about it until the movie was over, you know, and then it just kind of hit me and I was like, okay, all right, I'm good with this one. It's so much fun. Uh, If you listen to this show, folks. I don't know how many times Dana and I could tell you you should be listening to F This Movie as well, but this is yet another time. You should be listening to it. Go over there, play around with the seven-word reviews, read all the great articles that they've got going up. It's it's a deluge of Scary Movie Month goodness over there. Yeah, thank you for saying that. We feel similarly about your show, too, so it's all it's all one in the family. With that, Adam, why don't you go ahead and tell us what your first 90s horror movie is tonight? So the first pick that I have is a movie that uh, is a sequel to what is possibly my favorite horror movie of the 1990s. Um, It's a movie that I've had to defend more than I expected to over the years, and that is 1997's Scream 2, directed by Wes Craven. The movie tells the story of Sydney Prescott, um, the survivor of the Woodsboro High School uh, massacre and uh, serial killings from the first Scream. She is now in college at, I think it's w- Windsor University, and she, which is kind of like an arts and humanities focused college. There's film courses and drama courses mostly. The other returning characters are Courtney Cox as uh, reporter Gail Weathers and uh, David Arquette as Deputy Dewey and Jamie Kennedy is Randy, the the film geek. And really the rest of the the cast is brand new. So you had a lot of people who were kind of popular of the time, Sarah Michelle Gellar off of Buffy and Jerry O'Connell and some newbies like Timothy Oliphant just at the beginning of his career too. So um, it has a really impressive deep cast, just like the first movie. And it's really just sort of the same template of, you know, a mystery, like a Scooby-Doo mystery mixed in with a slasher. This one also has, you know, meta commentary about sequels unto itself. So one thing that I, I do love about Scream 2, though, is 
that it's really the movie that kind of sets the foundation to the rest of the series and sort of improves the original, even though the original doesn't even need improving to begin with, because it's the one that makes you realize, oh, okay, this is the Sydney Dewey Gale show. This is a, mo- a franchise that loves its protagonists. And it's funny because now with the news that Scream 5 is coming out, and I, I wait with bated breath for every new Scream movie announcement until I see the movie and I'm just like, you better not do anything that Sydney Gale and Dewey. They're just become beloved characters. And that's one of the reasons why I love Scream 2 so much is because it gives the, the actors space to take their roles from the first movie, which were more than archetypes, but it really gives them the opportunity in Scream 2 to deepen those people and their character relationships, while also at the same time having a lot of fun with just being a slasher movie. Um, there's a new kind of boost of energy just being in the in, on a college campus. And also, it's a movie with a lot of swagger. Like, sometimes sequels... You know, coming off especially a surprise success in the original, there's like kind of just this juice to them. And I feel like Scream 2 had that. It was sort of one of the few event horror movies of the 1990s. I distinctly remember seeing it on opening night and just being, um, you know, really caught up with kind of like the stadium effect of it, of watching that movie with an audience. And it's all the more impressive to me because it's sort of a miracle how it came together. It came out less than a year after the original. They were throwing out script pages and writing pages that they shot that day and flushing it out while they were filming. So it's a movie that shouldn't work as well as it does, but it somehow, you know, the the movie gods were smiling upon Wes Craven and company in uh, 1997, just as much as in 1996. And I love Scream 2, and a lot of people seem to think that it's sort of on par with Scream 3, Scream 4, but I disagree. I think it's closer to the quality of the first one. Very good recommendation. Scream is already on the list, so this is a good recommendation. I'm not going to dwell on this too much. I am actually one of those people who's not a big fan of it. I don't want to get into into too many reasons why, but that Mm -hmm. being said, I have always felt the opposite of you. I feel like I'm the one that's in the supreme minority on it. Like, I keep my mouth shut about Scream 2. Because I feel like if I open up that I don't love it, I get get all sorts of stuff for that. And, And that's fine. I think there's some things that in it for me, there's a couple of decisions that are made that break the movie for me. And I don't expect those decisions to be the same for anybody else. Like, for instance, this is the only one I'm going to dwell on. For instance, as you know, Adam, I ride or die for John Woo. Yes. I love Broken Arrow, starring your boy JT. I know where this is going. And (laughs) when I first saw this in the theater, because I, like you, saw it opening night. And you're right. Seeing it opening night was amazing. It was an event. And that is just not, you know, that was what action movies were. That was what temples were. Horror movies made for not very much money were not events the way Scream 2 and Scream 3 were. Scream 2 was the peak, right? That that movie was crazy seeing that in the theater. But yeah, then the uh, the Dwayne Eddy, uh, Hans Zimmer riff comes in for Dewey's theme. And, and I'll tell you, I don't know that 
the movie was ever able to get me back 23 years later. And that's such a petty complaint about it, especially once you read the backstory that they just used it as a temp track and they thought it was such a good theme that they kept it. But it always bugged me because it's such a swaggering theme for Travolta in Broken Arrow. And then they use it for Dewey, who is, shall we say, not swaggering. But nonetheless, man, I love this recommendation. And I love exactly what you said about the series loving its protagonists. You know, you and I are relatively online. And so every time they announce new news, there's always the debate. There's certain people that just, oh, I hope they kill off Sydney this time. And I get so friggin apoplectic when i see that because i'm just like look man nobody was going into like die hard five saying man i hope they kill john mcclain this time i mean i think some of us were after we saw it going into die hard six we might be (laughs) (laughs) but but or rambo or the terminator or any of these action genres where we have a lead actor and it's like and i know people say well scream's a horror movie it's different Is it really? I mean, yes, it's definitely a horror movie, but half the fun of the Scream movies is watching Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers and Dewey, like, figure out what's going on, solve the mystery, and especially Sid figure out how to deal with these various massive amounts of trauma she's had and still kick all sorts of ass. Like, yeah. I can't even comprehend how mad I would be if they kill Sid off in the new one. Yeah, that would be like a one and done for me if that were the case. If she survived four times for ordeals with the ghost face killers and it's like she's earned a lifetime of pass for that. So I, I wanted to comment on what you were saying about the Broken Arrow score because I have a similar thing with James Horner when he reuses his own scores. So like if you're watching Patriot games, there's like a scene where Jack Ryan is like at a computer desk thinking about something. And I'm like, why are they playing Ripley music? Yep. It's it, And it's one of those things that again, I'm just such a, we're, we're both just such film nerds yeah. that I, you know, the average audience isn't going to notice that and stuff like that. I will say this about scream two for me. I keep watching it. I mean, it's when I do a Scream rewatch, it's not one I skip because in spite of the things that some of the things I don't like about it, I think there's other stuff in it that's just absolutely essential. And I do love I stole the word to, you know, to use it for Travolta and Broken Arrow. But I love that you said it has swagger because it totally does. This movie is Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson in spite of how crazy the filming of it was. This is them just filling their oats. Man, they are just, they are riding high on the success of the first one. And and you can just tell, they think they can do anything. Yeah. And, and I love that. I think that's one of the best things about the movie is just that, like you said, that swagger. And, and the way they don't just rehash the first one. They do different and interesting stuff with it. Yeah, it feels like they still have story to tell, which is, which is nice. They um, are emboldened by the success of the original and it's like oh okay like they really liked what we did so let's continue to trust that instinct i don't know i i think the movie i kind of have a a meaning you know being that it's a movie about sequels i kind of have my own like pet theory about sequels and about franchises is you have a 10-year window from the time that the first movie came out 
to the time that you need to stop making movies in that franchise because I feel like part of the juice of a franchise is that it represents the era that it was from. So like when a movie comes out where, and there's of course exceptions, but if a movie comes out from in the eighties and then their sequel isn't until 2018, I feel like they're too disparate. Like they don't, they just don't feel cohesively as a part of the series. And I bring that up because I think scream two really benefits from being so hot on the heels of the original. It feels like a direct continuation more so than a sequel where like everybody kind of like let it get to their heads too quickly because as the movie was, as the first movie was, you know, a word of mouth sensation, they had to have been filming the second one in order to make that date. I think that that probably benefits the movie as well. I 100% agree because, you know, we get a ton of these. Matt Singer from Screen Crush calls them legacy sequels, and I, I can't find a better term for it, so I've just stolen it. Yeah. We get a ton of those, and and pretty much, yeah, like you said, there's exceptions, but the exceptions are pretty much, you know, I think of Fury Road, where that movie, the Road Warrior, the, the original Mad Max movies were so of their time, and what George Miller did was make Fury Road of its time, and it is almost a completely different movie. It still works because Max is such kind of a cipher as a character, mm-hmm. but that's not easy to pull off, and a lot of movies don't allow you to do that i you know take jurassic world for instance which is i think in my mind kind of one of the worst of those sort of legacy sequels i'm with you i think scream 2 it feels like an actual part two yeah that that like this was a two-part movie and we just we got him a year later. Like it's so tied into the first one. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I'll say about it is um, when you mentioned ciphers, one thing that I find just fascinating about the scream franchise is it's a, it's a slasher series, but it's one of the few, if only if the only one that I can recall where the villain is almost immaterial. Like that character is a cipher that you could, you could plug in anybody for any motivation for any reason into Ghostface. But the reason why we keep coming back, the glue to it is the protagonist. And we don't have that in, you know, Friday the 13th or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And somewhat we do with Halloween, but Laurie Strode isn't in every Halloween movie. So it's uh, it's special in that regard. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, we got it in Friday a little bit because we have that sort of trilogy in the middle. But mm-hmm. have the characters played by different actors in every movie. We got Heather uh, Langenkamp in Nightmare, but she's only in two movies. This is one that is incredibly unique, and I agree with you. That's why I get so annoyed by the, oh, they better kill off Sid this time. It's like, really? Ghostface is what you're watching this for? Like, that's really, like, (laughs) that's your drawing point to these movies? Because it ain't for me, and it's clearly not for you. In fact, Ghostface is kind of a weenie. By and large, the Ghostfaces get you know, they get beat up most of the time in those movies. They're so. interesting when they're yeah. unmasked. It's not, it's like, that's, that's when you care more. Like, yeah, when they're running around and stuff, that's just, you know, it's part of the show, but it's not like why you're there, at least for me. Like also the movies are so meta in their commentary that like, that was never really the draw for me because I feel like in a lot of cases that stuff dates really quickly. And if, 
the movies didn't have as much heart as they did, namely one and two. I, I don't think three and four are nearly as good, but if they didn't, if the first two movies didn't have the heart that they did, they wouldn't endure the way that they do. Agreed completely. I will just leave this with the last thing. Listeners, I am a Scream 3 defender. Oh. Do not at me. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't really get into it on this show because it, it came out in the year 2000. And obviously, 4 is is well beyond that. But I actually, I do think that 3 has... I don't think three is as good as one by any stretch of the imagination. I like it better than two, but if I'm being objective, I think it's a worse movie than two, but I still, I don't think there's a bad scream movie. I I think all four of them are at least above average. It's uh, in the horror genre. That's, that's pretty rare. Uh, So I, I think it's a pretty solid series all around. Yeah, I would agree with that. For my first pick, I have already put the first two entries into this series on the list. There's only one other option possible for me to put on the list, and I am just going to complete the trifecta. This will be the first complete film series to end up on the 20th Century Movie Club. This one is a little bit more controversial than the first two entries. I find that there are... Some people who do not appreciate the shift in tone that this third movie in the franchise took, but I happen to love it. So I am recommending the 1992 Sam Raimi-directed Army of Darkness, the third in the Evil Dead trilogy. Our boy Ash is trapped in the Middle Ages. He is still dealing with deadites. He is still dealing with uh, the Necronomicon He is going to bring his braggadocio swagger to the Middle Ages and teach them how to fight Kandarian demons and lots of Three Stooges shenanigans is going to happen. Adam, I know you've seen Army of Darkness, man. What do you think of it? I'm a really big fan of it. It was the first Bruce Campbell movie and Evil Dead movie that I ever saw. I saw it um, on its run of uh, sci-fi channel airings that were basically daily, like in the late 90s. And I watched it when I was, you know, early in high school. And there's no better time to find Sam Raimi in your life than early in high school. I was blown away by Army of Darkness. It's It was exactly, it hit my funny bone squarely. Bruce Campbell, like, immediately became my favorite actor for a time period. I love it still to this day. It's a movie that I'm so familiar with that I have to take breaks for years from because otherwise it's sort of like checking boxes and I don't want it to be that way. That's only a testament just to how many times I've watched it over the years. And it's just a super easy movie to put on. And it's so ingenious with with its set pieces. And there's so much creativity and sense of play there. And I'm all for, you know, maybe it's just because I came to it first, but I'm all for like, trying a different spin on the same series, especially when it's a gradual shift, which I think the evil dead series definitely earned because the first one is balls out horror. And then the second one is still a gore fest, but still adding more of that three stooges comedic bent. And then, yeah, the third one is really, it's uh, rated R, but it's honestly, it could be like, it's so fully into the comedy frame of mine it could be like a gateway horror movie for like somebody who's like 10 years old. So I think it's pretty fantastic. That's the thing I always say is I think it comes by it. Honestly, I think if you watch, not even if you watch 
Sam Raimi's career progression. But even if you just watch the three movies, there's a shift there. It it is coming by it honestly. The ash at the end of Evil Dead 2 is not that far removed from the ash that we get at the beginning of Army of Darkness. And the tone at the end of Evil Dead 2 is not that far removed from the tone we get at the beginning of Army of Darkness. I think it's a very clever way of shifting a story that you're telling, especially when, you know, we're talking years between each installment. But I also just love this was the this was the Dark Man blank check, right? Like Dark Man was a big hit for Sam Raimi, which is another one where I say, you know, if you do watch Raimi's career, going from Dark Man to this, not that much of a change. This is a lot more amusing. This is a lot funnier than Dark Man, but in terms of the creativity and the camera techniques and everything like that. They're clearly a, a pairing. And that, that was what Raimi did with his Dark Man check, was make Army of Darkness. You know, listeners of this show know that how much I love Raimi. He and John Woo were tied for my favorite directors, and nobody else is even close. And so, you know, I could talk about this movie for hours and days. But like I said, I do find that there are some people that don't like that shift. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you're not one of them, Adam, because I'm with you. I, I love this movie. I think it's so quotable. It's so funny. It's just and but it's also intense. And we get I mean, we get maybe the last kind of great homage to Ray Harryhausen when when Ash is fighting the skeleton. Uh, like there's a lot of really terrific stuff in this movie. Yeah. One of the things that I pick up on more than in any other movie in army of darkness is how amazing the ADR lines are. There's so many off screen, like just comments or remarks or reactions that just crack me up. Like it, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like you hear like there's, um, you know, the witch who throws like the boiling water in the night's face. And then, He's just like, my eyes, my eyes, I'm blind. But like just the way he's saying it is so like Monty Python-ish that you're just like, wow, even like the the guy who's 37th on the call sheet is giving it his all in this movie. So it's it's really delightful. Yeah, everybody's all in on this one. And one of the things I love about it, too, is because by this point, Campbell, you know, this is such a family and I don't mean like biological family, although Ivan Ramey co-wrote it, but and Ted Ramey co-stars in it. But it's also a found family movie. Tappert and Campbell are also so invested in this. And if you listen to any of the like the audio commentaries on any of the eight thousand discs <laughs> that have come out of this movie, yeah. they talk about how Ramey really wanted ash to be just like a craven coward in this and campbell really pushed back on him and was like look ash is dumber than a bag of hammers you don't want him as a boyfriend but when you got to kill some deadites he's the best guy to have and i think because of that back and forth between them we get kind of the perfect ash like we get the ash who is just heroic enough to save the day but is also completely and unbelievably self-interested and stupid so he ends up creating the problems but then he's tough enough and courageous enough to solve the problems and i think that makes him a really unique not not as much now but certainly in 1992 i think that made him a really unique hero 
not just in horror, but kind of in movies on the whole. I will always love the movie for that. Yeah, that's something I've never really thought about before, but it's a really good insight that you just said is that he's a problem solver. And that's endearing because, you know, like I'm sure in the walks of life in your career, I know for me, for mine is there's so many people who just are quick to complain and quick to point fingers. But then if you ever say, well, what do you think? Like what? And you're asking them, you know, for a solution to a problem. They're just clueless. And the thing that's nice about um, Ash is even though he's clueless, he's ready to keep moving forward. He's a progressive character. He's ready to move the action. He's got ideas. He's got plans. And it's refreshing to be in the company of a character like that in a movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's so summed up by the quote where where Arthur says, are all men from the future loudmouth braggarts? And Ash just goes, no, just me. <laughs> just me. Yeah. Like, like that, that's just that that is is just everything I love about him. So, folks, you know, we I've now recommend I, I will spare you from any more Evil Dead recommendations. I've now recommended all three of them. One of the perks of me getting to host this show now is Dana can't tell me no. <laughs> so uh, please watch all three of the Evil Dead movies. They're all 20th Century Movie Club approved. And uh, yeah, Adam, anything else you want to add about Army of Darkness? No, you said it really well. Um, it's it's definitely a super easy watch. It's like 80 minutes um, and it's well worth your time. Then why don't you lead us into your next pick? Okay, so... My next pick is probably the most wild card pick of the bunch, but it's a movie that on first viewing I did not like. And then I've watched it twice this year, once in September and once today, and I'm starting to fall in love with it. And that's 1991's Popcorn, which was a movie with two directors Alan Ormsby was the first one he of uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which was an exploitation horror movie from the 70s. He was closely affiliated with Bob Clark, who went on to do uh, Black Christmas in the horror genre, and then also, most notably, Christmas Story and Porky's outside of horror. Alan Ormsby was directing it in a way that the studio or producers weren't satisfied with, so they went and they uh, fired him and they hired a new guy, basically to fill in the rest of the movie, which is kind of split in two. So let me describe the film for you first. It's one of the most idiosyncratic slasher movies you'll ever see. It's from 1991, but you, it feels exactly like something that you would see in the 1980s. It's a slasher set at an all-night horror marathon inside an old kind of uh, movie palace a film class is using that as the horror marathon is a fundraiser. So they're putting on a show. They're doing a triple feature of three films all made up. Um, it's very much like Mant and Matinee. These movies, you got Mosquito, which comes in 3D. You've got um, an Electric Man movie, with co which comes with the built-in gimmick like William Castle had with seat buzzers on some of the seats. And then there was um, The Stench, which is a Japanese movie with smell-o-vision. And um, the horror marathon is playing to all these gimmicks. So they're, they're, they're putting in all these gimmicks within the movie. And then the nice thing about it is 
you get to see the movies within the movies. So you get to see, you know, five minutes of, uh, of mosquito or five minutes of the stench. And it's really fun. And those are the segments that Alan Ormsby directed. And apparently he was taking so much time with those. They didn't have enough time to do the actual modern day slasher parts of it. So that's why he got fired and they hired a new director to do it. The modern day slasher stuff isn't as good as the sort of matinee esque element of it, but the whole, putting on a show aspect of, of it and like having a horror marathon. It's such a neat conceit for a horror movie. And it's something that I've been, I've been to horror marathons, like 24 hour ones or all nighters. And this movie captures the fun of those so completely that it wins you over and lets you overlook flaws within the rest of the movie. This movie cracks me up because it was it's supposed to be set in Los Angeles, but it was filmed in Jamaica. So like there's a Jamaican bands playing music throughout the movie with very movie specific songs like Saturday Night at the Movies. Who cares what what picture you see and things like that. And they just do like these little interstitials. It's almost like Rocky Horror Picture Show. So the movie is just very bizarre and weird. And then at times it's incredibly violent. And then there's like a talking killer, like straight out of a Bond movie. And he talks for the entire third act of the movie. Like if you set your watch to it, you're just like, wow, he's really still explaining this plot. And it's been 20 minutes. And uh, one of my favorite things about it now, which is kind of a joke that only works currently, is there's a haunted movie within the movies. There's like this real that if you play it, it causes like hypnosis and uh, the lead actress played by Jill Sholin of like Phantom of the Opera 89 and Cutting Class. She was kind of an it girl of horror at the, in the late 80s. She's in duress because of this, this, this movie. And the movie's called Possessor. And it's funny to me because now there's a Brandon Cronenberg movie called Possessor. So the entire time I'm thinking, oh, crap, when I eventually see that movie, I'm going to get, like, hypnotized by this cult, this Manson-like cult leader who made this movie from Popcorn. It's the most damnedest movie. It's so weird, but I'm just starting to really love it because it is clearly a movie made with love by the people who made it. They had a burning passion to tell this story, it's a movie with a very limited audience, but if it hits the mark for you, it's going to really hit the mark. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to really love about popcorn. I mean, I, I think you've you've kind of hit on it. It's a bit of a mess of a movie, yeah. and, and there's just no there's no denying that. Like, if you haven't seen it, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, and you check it out, like we're not saying it's not a mess of a movie. I think first of all, the thing I always took away from it was I really want to see the possessor. Man, I really want to see that entire movie. The five minutes I got was not enough. For yeah, me. but uh, I think Jill Sholin is absolutely terrific in it. I actually think. Tom Villard, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It might be Villard or something, but Tom Villard is really, really good yeah. in it. You know, sadly, he passed away not too long after this. And so this is kind of maybe he was in a few other things. I know he was in Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge. I think that's where I first saw him. He was in a TV show called We Got It Made. Yeah, I know him from but, My Girl. He was in that. Yeah. But I think he's he's pretty great, and he's so very clearly having just a blast yeah. in this movie. So I I think if you're like you said, I couldn't I can't explain it any better than you did. Of 
it's for a niche audience, but if you're in that niche, if it hits the mark, then it's definitely for you. You will find a lot to like about this movie. And yeah, I'm with you. It I haven't been to that many horror, you know, like all night horror festivals. It really made me when I was a kid and I watched this want to go to one. Yeah, there there's so much fun and this movie is it's such a even if you don't love it, it's kind of the right movie to put on like if you're having a bunch of friends over and watching some scary movies in October and you want to show them something that's kind of WTF, either you're going to be like, what is this? This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Or what is this? This is hilarious. This is such a weird curiosity. And I kind of was on both sides of the fence on it, but it's so charming and kind of sincere that uh, I I'm starting to really kind of fall for it. So I would say go into it knowing that you it's, it's just a really odd movie, but you might really enjoy it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned matinee. I think it would make a great double feature with matinee. Yep. Watch this one first. Cause matinee is the superior movie. So you want to go out strong. Yep. I also think it would make a nice double feature with scream. Or if you want to do a triple with Scream and Scream 2, because it also has sort of a little bit of that, well, a lot of that meta commentary. It's almost kind of, uh, if Scream was made by people who weren't nearly as talented as Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, I don't mean that as a knock, because you would have needed the best to pull off Scream. But I still think it it would play nicely. Uh, with those movies i i think it's i think you're right i think sitting down with some friends and some huh, popcorn and a couple <laughs> of beers or or your uh substance of choice and and enjoying it for the evening i think it's there's way worse ways you could spend a night yeah i i found it funny that um you know you mentioned like kind of the self-reflective aspect of the movie and how it matches scream and it was kind of a precursor to like Wes Craven's new nightmare and things like that. And that attitude. Um, one of the things I read was um, uh, there's uh, this book about nineties horror by um, John Kenneth Muir. And he has a really good essay about popcorn in it. And one of the things I find funny that he points out is that it's such a, a, a great commentary on like the fifties sci-fi type of gimmick, William Castle horror movie but it almost has nothing to say about slashers, which it clearly is like at the late period of like the eighties slasher period. Cause it's 1991 and it's still, you still kind of have a little bit of the residue of like 80 slashers in the air. So it's, it's funny. It's like on one hand entire, it's like super sophisticated and on the other hand, pretty dense. And I think that sort of um, disparity almost benefits the movie because it makes it even more strange. Yeah, it's definitely strange. You know, it suffers from some pretty wild tonal shifts, yeah. which I think contribute to its charm. I could see for some people that that might be a little off-putting, but I, I, I think this is a good recommendation. I think this is a, like you said, sticking with the theme of the 20th Century Movie Club, this was damn near a forgotten movie. Yeah. You know, this is this is one it's it's seen a resurgence in the last couple of years because I can't remember. Is it Shout Factory that put it out uh, on Synapse. Blu-ray or was Synapse? So it's seen a little bit of a resurgence, but this was damn near a forgotten movie. So I'm glad you recommended it because Synapse put it out. 
it's a little easier to come by now. And uh, so I do hope some people check it out. Anything else you want to add? No, that's all. All right. Then I will lead us into my second pick, which is, in most people's estimations, the best movie from this director. But that is typically a backhanded compliment because this is a director that a lot of people do not enjoy. I happen to have a soft spot for I think he's far better than people give him credit for. I think he's made some terrible, terrible movies. But I do think he's better than people give him credit for. And you got to respect that the man has created not one, but now two franchises because he loves his wife so much. So, like, that's there's something to be said for that. Uh, my next recommendation is 1997's sci-fi horror film directed by the relatively maligned Paul W.S. Anderson, Event Horizon. For those who haven't seen it, Event Horizon follows the crew of the rescue vessel Lewis and Clark as they are dispatched out to retrieve the Event Horizon, a starship that was built to fold space to basically figure out a way to create faster-than-light travel, along with Lawrence Fishburne, Kathleen Quinlan, Julie Richardson, and the rest of the crew of the Lewis and Clark is Dr. Weir, played by the almighty Sam Neill, who is the man who invented the Event Horizon. When they find the Event Horizon, they find an empty ship, and from there, the best way to describe it is shit gets fucky. Uh, (laughs) Bad things happen, and all sorts of ooey-gooey nastiness happens, and I just absolutely love this movie. It is one of the last movies... When I saw it in the theater that truly terrified me, I actually had to go home and I had rented Howard Stern's private parts and had it sitting at home. I had to go home and watch that because this movie got under my skin so much and that has not happened in many, many moons. Adam, what do you think of uh, Event Horizon? Uh, I was kind of obsessed with this movie when it came out. I really love it. Um, I agree with you. I'm not ride or die for Paul W.S. Anderson, but his first two movies, Mortal Kombat and Event Horizon, I really like a lot. This one I was completely taken by surprise by because I saw it when I was a teenager and it was after school one day. There was a theater a few blocks down the street from our high school, so I walked over there with some friends and we were expecting it to be much more a sci-fi movie and none of us had seen like a Hellraiser movie up to that point. So seeing Hellraiser in space basically was it really took us by surprise with like the level of gore and kind of brutality in the movie. And I think it's it's got just so many things that I, I love in a movie like I'm really a fan of the crew type of ensemble piece. And this one's got a really good, really good cast of characters There's a comic relief character played by Richard T. Jones that I know a lot of people don't really like because he kind of is a weird fit with the rest of the movie, which is much more serious, and he's broadly comedic. But I never had a problem with it. I think it's just the right amount of comedy for the movie. Also, you know, this was like pretty shortly after Jurassic Park, so Sam Neill was my guy, and I thought it was really neat to see him in a different kind of role um, that he plays here than I was used to seeing with Dr. Alan Grant and just the movie from a production level or a production uh, quality standpoint is, is pretty great. Like those sets have a lot to owe to, you know, alien and cube and um, they're beautiful to look at. It's a great looking movie. The soundtrack is amazing. A lot of, he was orbital and 
the prodigy and things like that, uh, kind of like electronic punk techno of that was popular at, at the time. It's a movie that just really has a lot of foreboding in it that I, I think it, it does great job of setting mood. I do have a couple questions for you about event horizon though. If you're, if you're ready for them fire away, my friend, do you find Sam Neill's character sympathetic? Because I always have, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to. I think you're supposed to find him, if not sympathetic, I think you're supposed to find him tragic. I don't think that he's supposed to just be, you know, without getting into spoilers, I think he's supposed to be sympathetic enough that we're going to consider him a fall essentially folks i'm gonna i'm gonna get into just a little bit of spoilers here so you can fast forward a few minutes if you don't want to hear it if you haven't seen this movie or just stop go watch it and come back given that we are to assume that the event horizon went into hell or at least a hell dimension or hell universe I actually kind of think we're supposed to view Weir as the fallen angel because he starts off sympathetic. He starts off with the best of intentions. And then for a variety of reasons, he essentially falls, uh, which is like I people are r- driving in their cars, rolling their fucking eyes now so much <laughs> because I am entirely giving too much credit to Event Horizon. But that is the best way I can analogize it is that I think. If, we're, if he's not necessarily supposed to be sympathetic, I think he's supposed to feel we're supposed to feel tragic. We, we are not supposed to be happy that he has built this thing that has brought about all this destruction when he only had the best interests in humanity at heart. Yeah, I, I was just always wondering that because it's it's kind of like that balance of, you know, do you just like this actor so much that you're like willing to let him get away with more than if it was say James Spader playing that part where you're kind of already primed for him to be a little oily and kind of evil. I think the movie doesn't work if James Spader plays that part though. I think it requires Sam Neill because we have to at least be somewhat surprised that Sam Neill turns out to be the problematic child on the ship. If it's James Spader, we're all, we're already out of the movie 30 seconds into it. Right. Like when 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 he gets on the ship with the Lewis and Clark crew, it's like you're already like, well, just just send this dude out the airlock now because he's going to kill all of you. Like it, we're we're already the movie's lost us. So I think it has to be Sam Neill for the movie to work. OK. And my second question for you is what percentage odds would you give it that the Scream Factory Collector's Edition, which is coming out in January, will have the extended long lost cut of the movie? I give it next to zero. I'm not going to say it's zero because I feel like if they had actually found that footage, we would have heard of it. We, they would have been like throwing parades for themselves because I mean, that footage is, you know, one of the sort of the Holy grails of horror cinema. So I think we would have heard about it. I'm going to choose to remain cautiously optimistic, but uh, I don't give it real good chances. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm foolishly optimistic. I'm hoping that it's the, the reason why they delayed it, that they were able to find it and they needed more time to kind of maybe, I don't know, restore it. Yeah, this is like something I'm more interested in seeing than the lost cut of London After Midnight. <laughs> 
Seriously, like the, you know, because you can find on folks, for those who are wondering what we're talking about and you haven't skipped ahead because of spoilers, Event Horizon was was just gruesomely cut. People have been clamoring for the uncut version of the movie for years. Paul W.S. Anderson tried to find the footage. He said that it had been destroyed. There are some VHS rips that you can find, not of the full movie, but of some of the scenes that were cut that you can find on YouTube or Vimeo if you look around for them. But, I mean, a fully restored director's cut of this movie would just be terrific. Yeah, You know, I don't want to lose the theatrical version because in a lot of ways, what freaked me the hell out was because they had to cut so much. They did those really quick flashes and stuff. And when you're seeing that in a theater, and I always sit, if I'm by myself in a movie, I always sit on the third row. I want to be enveloped. And so when you're seeing that, (laughs) you know, at midnight, because you had to go see the movie after work one night, like that just, I will never forget seeing that. And and so I think it would lose something to see all that stuff back into it, but I would love to have both versions. Yeah. I ironically, I saw this the, the most recent time at a 24 hour marathon and it played at midnight and seeing it in a theater with a lot, a lot of people in the audience um, were younger than me and probably around, you know, in their twenties or something. And this was their first time seeing the movie it really got to them and it was kind of neat to see that, that the movie still retained its power and in a theater, especially. And I say this because you can kind of replicate this experience pretty closely at home, the audio mix and the sound design of it, it's an assault on like your senses. And it's in a great way. Like this movie is something that more than just visually can get under your skin. Even the credits, because it's like, and again, I'm not going to spoil the end of the movie, but, you know, the movie ends, it kind of goes quiet. And then all of a sudden prodigy's funky shit just blows through the speakers. And you're like, Jesus, like, (laughs) what is going on here? Yeah. It's I, I'm glad you agree. Cause I really love this movie. I know not everybody does, but I, I really think this one is, is uh, just a terrific sci-fi horror movie. Really something that people should check out. Yeah. It's a great pick. All right, buddy, take us into your third pick. All right, so I was trying to decide between a bunch of different choices for my third pick, and I was like, do I want to pick something that I've never talked about on F This Movie, or do I want to be on my bullshit? And I decided to pick the movie that I think I'm most well-known for at F This Movie as championing because I want to spread the love, and I want to bring it to a bigger audience than just the one at F This Movie. And that is 1997's Wishmaster. <laughs> so, <laughs> you son of a bitch! You told me you weren't going to recommend this one. <laughs> I like, I, I literally wanted to do 90s movies, 90s horror movies with you because I wanted you to recommend Wishmaster, and then you suckered me. All right. You suckered me, my friend. Well, I'm glad that I suckered you in a good way, as opposed to you know disappointing you. So. Wishmaster, for those of you who have not seen the movie, it is firmly in the tradition of the fantasy horror movie that was popular in the 90s, Warlock, Leprechaun. Um, Wishmaster is the best of the breed, I think, although I do love Warlock and Leprechaun. Wishmaster tells a story about an evil genie 
that's pretty much the movie. A woman awakens an evil genie because an opal that was inside of a statue gets loose. She gets three wishes, but everybody else gets one wish from the genie, and the genie is malevolent. So anytime somebody wishes for something, he finds an ironic spin on it and gives those people unjust desserts in many cases um, and use, and kind of takes the words that they use and plays it against them. So if somebody says, you know, I want to escape this life, they end up in a Harry Houdini trap where they're in a straight jacket in a, in a, in a box of water. So why am I recommending Wishmaster? It's one of the silliest, most fun horror movies of the 1990s. It, is best known probably for being the movie that um, was a clothesline for every horror legend of the 80s and 90s. So this movie features in non-slasher parts, um, you got Kane Hodder, Tony Todd, Robert England, Joe Pilato, Reggie Bannister, Ted Raimi, uh, the list goes on. The narration at the opening doing the scrawl is, or the crawl is Angus Scrim. And uh, the movie's led by a career best performance by Andrew Divoff, um, who you might know from movies like A Load on Dirty Shame or Another 48 Hours or Air Force One. He always plays kind of one of the bad guys. And in this movie, he just he chews the scenery with relish and he plays the human incarnation of the genie and then also the genie, um, you know, all in the devil costume makeup effects. The makeup is done by K&B and Robert Kurtzman. Uh, Robert Kurtzman, one of the three of K&B, including Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero. This was Robert Kurtzman's directorial debut. It was his calling card. I think it's a a terrifically directed movie for a first-time outing. And it's bookended by two of the greatest gore special effects practical creature work set pieces that you'll ever see in a 90s horror movie at the beginning and at the end. It's a complete blast. It's super gory. It's super funny. Um, The protagonist of the movie is played by Tammy Lauren, and she's like if Meg Ryan was in a horror movie and she drank like 10 five-hour energies before she started rolling. Um, She's great. It's just a really fun, goofy horror movie that is sometimes if you go into a movie with knowing the premise, you only give it a certain amount of credit because you're like, oh, it's the evil genie movie. But if you ever want to see the best possible evil genie movie, watch Wishmaster because that's what you'll be getting. Man, you have a brand. (laughs) You have a brand. It's like me talking about Scott Adkins movies. You have a brand, my friend. So I watched Wishmaster in 97. I actually saw it in the theater, the dollar theater, but still the theater nonetheless. And I absolutely hated it. (laughs) And then I listened to this podcast a few years ago with this dude, Adam Risky on it. And he goes on and on and on about how much fun Wishmaster is. And I'm like, you know what? He sold me. I'm going to give Wishmaster a rewatch. And son of a bitch, if he wasn't right, like, like, I don't, I don't think I had the appreciation. I don't love it with the whole being that you do, but what I did have that I didn't quite have in 97, like I knew Andrew Devoff from toy soldiers. I knew him from a couple of other things, but you know, over the years he has, I mean, he made wishmaster the same year he made air force one, like, 
over the years, this dude has been in a lot of movies and a lot of movies that I really like. He showed up on the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Like, I didn't have the appreciation for Devoff and what he was doing mm. that I did three or four years ago whenever I rewatched it. And now I think while the rest of the movie doesn't always hold together, good Lord, you got to watch it for him. If you haven't seen this movie, he is giving a singularly fantastic performance in this movie. He is just, he, he knows exactly what kind of movie he's in. He knows exactly how much scenery he needs to chew. And he is just doing it perfectly it's not the kind of performance that will ever get the credit it deserves and i'm not being ironic here listeners i think it's a legitimately terrific performance i think he is owning the screen in a way that we want sort of all of our best actors to do i really think that he warrants regardless of what you may think of the rest of the movie he warrants watching the movie he's that damn good in it yeah, there's just there's something to be said of um, I forgot whose quote it was. I think it was maybe George C. Scott. It was like, you should always be either showing the joy or the agony of performance in your in your work. And um, yeah, Andrew Divoff and like I could put Billy Zane and Demon Knight in that category. You'll you'll find no actor having a better time playing a part in a horror movie than those two guys. And um, it's. It's pretty infectious, at least it is for me. So um, I think, if anything, I'm glad to have motivated people like you or a few other listeners into giving Wishmaster another chance. I don't know what it is. It's just a movie that just completely makes sense to me. Ironically, I remember learning about Wishmaster for the first time right as I came out of seeing Event Horizon and being shook by that. And directly across the hall from me in the multiplex was a poster for Wishmaster, and I was like, what is that? And I was just chemically changed forever. So it was a great day at the movies. <laughs> yeah, it was. No, and I I love the Demon Knight. I think Demon Knight is, for me, I think Demon Knight's a, a much, much better, you know, objectively sort of. I think I so, hate too. That word, but it, yeah. But you're right in terms of Billy Zane and Demon Knight is just giving, like, you said it better than I could. I'm not even going to try and restate it. Like, you're never going to find an actor having more fun in a movie than Billy Zane is having in Demon Knight and Andrew Devoff is having in, in Wishmaster. They're having a blast. They're playing with the material. And and they know, you know, I I get the sense, too, with, with Devoff that, like, he, by this point, already had, like, 40 film credits. Yeah. And he knew that this was one of his shots to be the big man on set, right? This was because he's always played villains and a lot of stuff like that. This was his chance to really have that role, even though he's still the villain in it, but have that role that he can really be like, people are going to see this movie for me. He li he lives up to it. The one other one that falls outside our purview that I would say, and I only thought of it because... Uh, my friends at the Rank and Vile podcast just talked about it. Have you seen Brian Yuzna's Faust from 2000? I haven't seen it yet. That is a, if you like Divos' performance in Wishmaster, that's one worth tracking down. I know it's really hard to find now. I think Quincy on that show spent like 70 bucks for the DVD. So maybe, you know, don't don't put it at the top of the list to try and find it. But if you get a chance to see it, and you like what he's doing here. Uh, I think Wishmaster's actually 
now I think it's a better movie than Faust. But Faust has a whole bunch of craziness. It, it could kind of be a Wishmaster movie. It has the same sort of vibe and feel. And, and Divoff is just terrific in it as well. I spent $40 once to buy an Anchor Bay DVD of Rumpelstiltskin. So I think I could probably handle buying Faust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I, I think that I would argue that Faust even at more money would be a better purchase than Rumpelstiltskin. So, yeah, uh, yeah still doesn't have the magic of a uh, leprechaun. What can I say? <laughs> hey, that's what we do. Sometimes we spend entirely too much money on movies. We should yeah. anything else you want to add about Wishmaster? The only other thing I'd add is um, because we were talking about Billy Zane and Andrew Devoff, I had the, the honor of privilege, pleasure of meeting both of them at conventions and, I asked them kind of, you know, like, how did you prepare basically for these roles? And I asked Billy Zane that because I was like, it's such a unique, like personal, like idiosyncratic performance. Like, was it written that way or did you bring something to it? And he said that he basically was, he told the producers, he's like, Aladdin's popular right now. Do you want me to just do like my version of the genie? And they were like, yeah, that sounds good. And then when I, Heard that, I was just like, oh, man, I love, like, this performance even more. And then when I asked Andrew Devoff, like, you know, kind of the same question, he said, he his was interesting. He said that there were so many kind of horror legends on the set. He felt like a pressure to live up to Robert England's characterization of Freddy Krueger or Tony Todd's Candyman, and that they were all, like, really collaborative with him and saying, like, well, have you tried this? Have you done this? Like, you know, and he was bouncing ideas off of them. So I, I, it, it's just another story of kind of what a nice community sometimes the horror genre can be. So I, I really like that. I like that you added the sometimes because as we've seen over the last year, sometimes it can suck. Oh, it could be really toxic. Yeah. But I do like, I love those. Those are both very nice stories. Like I, I love the image of Billy Zane, like in front of his mirror with like, Aladdin playing on the TV behind him and him trying to like replicate that. Yeah. Uh, whatever he did, it worked. Uh, I love that performance. Uh, Demon Knight is folks for this. You know, there's a good chance that maybe even, you know, next October, that's going to end up a recommendation on this show. Cause I love that movie. I know Adam loves that movie. And then, yeah, I like, I like everybody helping out Divoff to just get craft the best performance that, that he can and again it works it's i mean i think wishmaster rides you know it rides entirely on his shoulders and he is more than up to the task yeah definitely yeah all right i am going to take us into my third and the final pick of the show and adam i'm actually really glad you you recommended scream too because as you know scream started a whole wave of sort of meta horror movies some of which were meta some of which weren't i still stand by that i know what you did last summer is in no way meta and the only reason it got lumped into that is because it's written by kevin williamson but it's it's not even close to the type of movie that scream is Mm -hmm. but my next recommendation is one that i do think falls into that because it is a movie that has a it's also written by kevin williamson has a very winking attitude about sort of what type of movie it is and tries to pay homage instead of to 80s slashers 
to 50s sci-fi alien invasion movies, and that is 1998's Robert Rodriguez directed The Faculty. For those who've not seen The Faculty, it stars Elijah Wood, Josh Hartnett, Clea Duvall, Jordana Brewster, Laura Harris, and Sean Hattesey as a group of students who discover that their school, their high school, is being invaded by... The best way to describe them is sort of these alien worms that turn into alien fish that can possess people and take them over. It's essentially a big homage to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And these misfits, because of course they are, all have to band together to try and figure out how to save their school. Nay, verily, save the world and the human race as we know it. And I will admit that I have no ability to be objective about this movie. I loved it when I saw it in the theater. I've continued to love it. I know there are people who criticize it. I don't care. I absolutely love this movie. Adam, what are your thoughts on The Faculty? Um, It's a movie that I'm kind of lukewarm on. There's a lot to like in it. And also, I, I just do have a certain amount of nostalgia for the teen movie of this period because these were my John Hughes movies really like since scream started, like it was event appointment viewing for me and my friends in high school to see the new scream movie, or I know you did last summer urban legend or the faculty. Then it eventually became like, she's all that and all that stuff. But um, the faculty itself is a movie that I, I don't think there's anything bad about it. It's just a movie that I never really kind of developed a crush on, so to speak. But I do like a lot of, a lot of things in it. I think that this was definitely Josh Hartnett's kind of, you know, star-making role. He sort of, you know, he was in Halloween H2O earlier that year. But this was the movie where you were just kind of like, wow, who is this guy? Why can't he comb his hair? <laughs> but he's he's great in it. And I think that it's... It's a lot of fun. Um, it's amongst the better Robert Rodriguez movies, who's kind of hit or miss for me. But back in the 90s, he was more hit than miss. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a good riff on both The Breakfast Club and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I enjoy it. Part of it for me is at that time, Hartnett, because primarily because of H2O, I was riding high on the Hartnett train. Like, he was the dude I wanted to be. He always, he dressed cool, and he never combed his hair. And and so I was just, I was all in on the Hartnett train. And seeing this movie opening night, because my family had opened on Christmas Day, and my family would always go see movies on Christmas after we did all the family stuff. And so this was what we went and saw on Christmas Day. And it was like, talk about a perfect storm of joy. I love Christmas. It's my favorite holiday of the year. I'm seeing a movie and it's got my boy Josh Hartnett in it. And then it turns out that it's also a lot of fun. Like, I'm just never going to be able to be objective about this movie. I've heard criticisms of it and I think they're all probably true. But then you look at the swank Tommy Hilfiger fashions that everybody's rocking in this movie. And it's just in that. I hate nostalgia, but this is a movie that is in that nostalgia part of my brain. Every time I watch it, it takes me back to 1998 and I, I'm just, I'm happy to go there. I'm with you. I never would have thought in 1998 that this would be among the better Robert Rodriguez movies, given the last 20 years of Robert Rodriguez's career. It's certainly among the better Robert Rodriguez movies. There's no question. I mean, I, I think 
arguably he's had one of the most disappointing careers of any director that sort of I discovered in my life, like who started in my life mm-hmm. and and has continued making movies. Uh, although, you know, I know you agree with this. Uh, Alita kicked ass. I really like Alita a lot. Um, I That's one of those movies where I, I never want to take away an achievement from somebody, but I do think he, he owes a lot of the credit to James Cameron for that one because it feels a lot like a James Cameron movie first than a Robert Rodriguez movie to me. I don't think there's any question of that, especially given that prior to that, he'd made Machete, Spy Kids all the time in the world, Machete Kills, and Sin City, Dame to Kill for. Movies that 201, I find borderline unwatchable. Yeah. So again, I also, when I watch this movie, I have happy nostalgic feelings of when Robert Rodriguez was one of the most exciting up-and-coming directors in Hollywood for me, so... Um, I get it. If people watch this one and they don't love it, I get it. I I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think there's a lot of fun stuff to like in it. I don't think it all necessarily holds together. I didn't mention that, you know, the teachers are all played by people like Robert Patrick and John Stewart and Famke Jansen and B.B. Newworth. Like, there's a lot of stuff to really like in it. It doesn't all hold together. I mean, it's kind of the movie that got Elijah Wood, Lord of the Rings. So at least give credit where credit's due as far as that goes, if nothing else, if you're a big Lord of the Rings fan. And Hartnett, be still my beating heart. Man, he's just, he's he's everything in this movie. I Yeah, I mean, like, I'm still, I'm still a big Hartnett guy. Like, I know it wasn't popular to be a fan of his for a while, <laughs> but um, even when he was kind of in, like, his... His uh, period of like Wicker Park and resurrecting the champ, I was still there opening weekend. So, yep, I'm with you. I'm a big heart and a guy. Always have been. He's made some terrible movies, but I still see him because he's he's one of those actors. All right. Anything else you want to add about the faculty, Adam? No, no, I'm good there. Um, I will say though, I think one of the reasons why I can't fully endorse it is I went on a really awkward 16 year old double date to see it. And I want to tell you this story cause I think it's really funny. So like I didn't know exactly kind of like what I was doing on this date. So I remember sitting in my chair and picking up my date's legs and putting them on my lap. And then my friend who was the other part of the double date turns to me and gives me a giant thumbs up where his date and my date could see it. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) So So whenever I think of the faculty, I cannot get that out of my head. And it's like basically just throwing embarrassment in my face for an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) So, folks, if you don't listen to F this movie, and Adam, I hope I hope you don't take offense to what I'm about to no, say it's here. Fine, go for it. For for those those who don't listen to F this movie, but listen to this show, Adam's dating stories are basically the dating equivalent of Dana's theater stories, and you really need to listen to F this movie so that you can hear him tell these stories because two oh one, they are just delightful every time i hear them your your misery is our joy my friend that's all i can say thank you i appreciate that um it's my pleasure it's just it's part of my journey so it's all good (laughs) we are all on a journey my friend we just have to be able to laugh about it when we can for sure so we have made our recommendation folks and as always we are going to tell you where to find them 
We always like to use the Just Watch app and website. It's not sponsored, but again, Just Watch, feel free to throw us some money. We're not going to complain. But it is the most accurate website we've found for letting you know where stuff is streaming. As always, this is accurate at the time of recording, but if you're listening down the road, make sure to double check with Just Watch, as we all know, annoyingly, streaming services are always gaining and losing movies. So Adam, tell us where we can find your recommendations. So Scream 2 is available to rent on Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube, Fandango Now, Vudu, Microsoft, Redbox, and AMC Theaters On Demand. It's also available to purchase at most of those same locations. By the way, I have to also say something about, I do love AMC Theaters On Demand's viral marketing because they're all like, we got your weekend plans and then it'll be like Ghostbusters is $2.99 to rent. And I'm like, that's not my weekend plan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it kills me every time. I just think I it's so funny. Like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like we've got this movie that's been out for 30 years and it's the same price that it usually is. Do it. <laughs> so anyways, all right, I digress. So um, popcorn, that one's a little harder to find. It is. It says it's streaming on a, on a channel called Flix Fling. So you need a subscription for that. Also, I don't know if this is kosher to say, but it's also on YouTube if you want to find it there. I would recommend pr- picking up the Synapse Films Blu-ray. It's pretty great. It's got a, a feature-length documentary about the movie. And Wishmaster is available to rent on Redbox, Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube, and Vudu, and also available to purchase at all of those places as well. I second Adam's recommendation on popcorn. Uh, Get the Synapse Blu-ray if you can. YouTube is always kosher for some of this stuff that's just hard to find. I've recommended stuff on YouTube before, so no worries there. And FlixFling, they are a reliable streaming service, but they are subscription-based, and they're certainly not big like some of the others. So see popcorn however you can. The other's easy to find. Mm -hmm. All right, my recommendations. Army of Darkness is streaming on Stars. If you have a Stars subscription or you subscribe to the channel through Amazon, you can check it out there. It's also available for rent or purchase on all your major streaming services. It has also been released on 526 different discs. Anchor Bay put out, I don't know, a thousand. And uh, Scream Factory just put out a new one a little while ago. You can get it on physical media. That is the preferred way to see it, especially because most of those discs have the alternate ending, which I don't like as much as the actual theatrical ending, but it's certainly worth seeing. Event Horizon is streaming on Fubo if you have a subscription to that, or Showtime if you have a subscription to that, as well as available for rent or streaming on all of your major services. Adam mentioned it. You might want to wait if you like physical media until next year to get the Scream Factory Blu-ray because fingers crossed. I mean, we know it's going to have cool stuff no matter what, but fingers crossed it may actually have that uncut footage. The Faculty streaming on CBS All Access. If you have a subscription to that, it's also on Vudu ad supported for free. Uh, I don't recommend it if you can see it without ads, but uh, if it's the only way to see it, do it. And it's also available for rental or purchase on most major streaming services. It goes on sale very frequently. Currently, as of recording, it's five bucks to buy on Amazon in HD. So 
it's worth throwing it's worth throwing five five bucks of your hard-earned dollars at it i think that's where you can find all of those all right adam plug some shit where can people find you man so I am on uh, fthismovie.com. Uh, you can find me there. I'll be on a couple podcasts this month, and then I uh, write two weekly columns over there. So you can read my work there. Or if you're looking for anything that I do, um, you can follow me on Twitter at RiskyAdam, and I retweet all of the shows that I'm on and my articles there. So that's probably the best kind of place to be a one-stop shop. Not to mention, he's a hilarious Twitter follow and uh, never fails to uh, put a smile on my face when I see him tweet things. So, <laughs> I highly recommend following him if you don't already. You can find me, as always, at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, where I blather on about things mostly Scott Adkins related. You can follow me on Hibachi or at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd where you'll find our continually updating list of all the movies we've recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. By the time you hear this, we will be well past the 200 movie barrier, uh, but we are going to keep on going because it turns out they made a lot more than 200 movies between 1900 and 2000. So I think we can keep this show going for a little while. You can also check out my new podcast. Uh, speaking of things Scott Adkins related, Adkins Undisputed. Follow that at Adkins Podcast on Twitter, uh, where I am going through movie by movie on every Scott Adkins movie. I'm a little obsessed. It might be a little unhealthy. You can find you can find Dana at Real Dana Buckler on Twitter. You can find the show at Dana Buckler Show on Twitter. Join our Facebook group, Dana Buckler Show. Follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. Email us. We like your feedback at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. We are a Patreon supported podcast where supporting us gets you early access to episodes, bonus classic How's This Movie episodes, as well as some new goodies when we get around to them. You can listen to the show on every major podcast app of choice. And if you like us, please do leave us a review. If you don't want to remember all of that bullshit I just said, you can find all of these links at linktree slash Dana Buckler Show. And finally, be sure to download the Dash Radio app and listen to Dana's new show, Hollywood Unfiltered, on the Fun for Life channel. It airs on Tuesdays. It's a terrific show. And every once in a while, you're going to get to hear me on there reviewing movies that I sometimes like and sometimes don't as well. Adam Risky, thank you so much for joining me on this, man. This was a blast. Yeah, thank you. And uh, happy Halloween, everyone. Yep. Enjoy your spooky, uh, scary movie month, folks. And uh, for Adam, for Dana Buckler, I'm Mike Scott. Hope you all have a wonderful night.